welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. I've got a couple questions of the week, and then an interview with Dr. Lynn Jansen, who is an expert on the ethics of early phase clinical trials, patient expectation, and the optimism bias. You won't want to miss this discussion. This is a far-ranging discussion about the way in which we conduct early phase clinical trials and the ethical implications for how we can send patients for those studies. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ for question of the week. Hematology Oncology Boards Edition with Dr. Sven Jamin Olson. Dr. Olson, it's great to have you here. <laughs> great to be back again. Uh, I I got a lot of uh, panning for my last time I had questions for being too hematology oriented, so hopefully I change it up sufficiently this week. This week, yeah. And uh, and these will be recorded in maybe in a bunch, but we're going to air them separately so people won't get the sense. But you got a bunch of oncology questions for us. That's great. Dr. Olson, you I just want to commend you. You've gotten off my off my bad list um, uh, for in two ways. One, that uh, all my lectures are humming. They're going to be going through as planned, so you redeemed yourself there. Two, um, you're, you're bringing your A-game to plenary session question of the week, which I really appreciate. I think the listener is going to appreciate. Um, you know, as a chief fellow, you have the opportunity to educate a few fellows, but through plenary session podcast, you may have the opportunity to educate just a few more. <laughs> I don't know, maybe a lot more, but who knows how many? <laughs> who knows how many? But I do notice, Dr. Olson, that today you're wearing footwear that is not hospital compliant. You know, I, I should expect this every time from you. I actually wore these shoes in clinic the other day, but oh. I did have socks on. Does a sock prevent a needle that's falling from the sky penetrating your toe? Well, if patients are dropping needles in our hematolo- our classical hematology I patient see. rooms, then things are getting out of control. what are we seeing? Yeah. yeah, things are getting out of control if that were to happen. All right, Dr. Olson, so this week, what do you got for us? All right, well... First, I'll just go ahead and read this question stem. This is a 65-year-old man. He's seen by his primary care doctor for headaches and right hand numbness. He gets imaged with a CT and subsequently an MRI of his brain, and it shows a mass in his left hemisphere. He undergoes subtotal resection, and it's a glioblastoma multiform. Mm. The MGMT promoter is methylated, and he's positive for an IDH mutation. So he gets six weeks of concurrent radiation and temozolomide and one month after that he comes to his clinic to start the maintenance temozolomide regimen and his family says he's had increasing right hand weakness and numbness again and they repeat the MRI brain and the tumor looks larger with some mild surrounding edema 
So the question is, in addition to corticosteroids, what are you going to recommend? And the choices are A, proceed as planned with maintenance temozolomide. B, hold the temozolomide until a repeat MRI in a month uh, and you're looking for resolution of edema. C, switch to bevacizumab and a can. Or D, consult neurosurgery for debulking surgery. Hmm. Okay, boy. I think you've got a good one here. Okay. Uh, so first off, uh, we've got a 65-year-old gentleman who came in with headaches and uh, it sounds like unilateral hand weakness or numbness. And uh, and then they underwent MR brain and probably radiographically it was just so distinctive that everyone felt like this is unfortunately to the GBM. And the reason we say unfortunately because the all GBMs, of course, stage four on presentation and median survival is, um, you know, extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, patient gets a subtotal resection and then gets RT and Temodar in accordance with uh, a randomized controlled trial that paid in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, supporting the addition of maintenance uh, Temodar there. I think uh, what happened is after the RT and before the maintenance setting, um, the patient has uh, edema, and it looks like the tumor is kind of looking a little bit worse. How exactly did they characterize that? Well, they said increase in size with surround mild surrounding edema on the T2 image. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I see, I see. Now, I'm no radiologist, and so the different modalities on an MRI still escape me, but what they're getting at is it looks worse. I see, right. And, uh, and, you know, we need to get a radiologist on this podcast at some point to talk about DWI and T1, T2 and all that stuff. But then again, maybe that's a little boring. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> knows, maybe Every time I've read about those things, I get it, and then I forget about it the next day. I think about that hydrogen atom and how it's being vibrated, and then I get uh, really, really drowsy, and so then I have to come back to it. Okay, so my options are, one, just push on, maintenance Temodar. Option two, Hold the Temodar, repeat the MRI, and prove that the edema gets better on corticosteroids. Option three, give him Bev and Irenotecan. Option four, repeat debulk the surgery. And I guess what I think the question is getting at is that it is a known and not infrequent complication of post-RT uh, to get some uh, vasogenic edema at the site of a prior operation, and things can sort of paradoxically look worse, uh, but it's actually not much worse. It's actually related to the fact that the patient just got treatment, and so the answer is to plow ahead uh, with maintenance uh, Temodar. What's the answer, Dr. Olson? You're correct. Oh, phew. This seems to be, and I think with test-taking strategies, you can sort of reason this may be the right answer anyway. Whenever uh-huh. they have an option to proceed as planned, you know, we have questions we see all the time like that. It seems like it's always the answer. I see, right. So, like, why would the board's maker put a proceed on plan? You know, one day they're going to they're gonna trip you up. It's going to be like an EGFR mutation that progresses on erlotinib, and then you get the T790M. Yeah, it's positive. Yeah. Yeah. So proceed as planned. Proceed I should not plan. recommend that <laughs> yeah. universally, but it does seem to be a trend. I think um, one answer here is clearly wrong, which is BEV, uh, <laughs> which is obviously because it's failed multiple phase three trials in this setting uh, and uh, should have been revoked by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but yet, strangely, it's not revoked by that agency. Uh, and But probably uh, if there is somebody who would use BEV, um, they might use it as sort of a, a, a multiply relapsed refractory patient, just sort of as a salvage attempter. Um, Steroid sparing for they, edema. They say that, but you know, uh, I don't want to get it too often to a tangent here, but <laughs> we have done like a super long regulatory dig on that study and, uh, and, 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 and I'm not entirely convinced that it actually does spare steroid in that one particular study that people quote. Okay, anyway, back to this thing. So what do I need to know about maintenance Temodar? Well, uh, the answer to this question highlights the fact that actually the MGMT promoter methylation does play a role in this. It's and good. so there is actually um, a study published 
by Brandis et al. in JCO 2008. And they looked at patients with and without MGMT methylation. And I should just go back a minute and say the MGMT, the function of it is to perform DNA repair. And so if you have methylation of the promoter, you don't have the MGMT protein. And that means that chemotherapy is going to be more likely to result in permanent damage to a tumor. And that's a better prognostic and predictive sign if you have an MGMT promoter. So you want that. I guess uh, I'd say methylated. Methylguanine methyltransferase, that's the promoter? Yes. yes. I see. Okay, so right. So MGMT methylation is one prognostically favorable, i.e. people with that mutation in GBM live longer than people who don't have their MGMT promoter methylated. And predictive. Yes, and it's predictive, right. So that the 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 point estimate, the relative risk benefit of Temodar is preferentially better if you have MGMT methylation. Yeah, and the yeah. paper by, I don't know how you pronounce the name. Stup. No, that's the original trial, uh, okay. but then the concurrent publication the same year, same month was by Heggie et al. And that's the one that I think is still always listed in New England Journal as one of the most cited or most uh, downloaded articles. Every time I look, it's always in the little margin as one of the most cited articles. That's a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. So that was the one that showed that uh, response to concurrent chemoradiation or just even uh, radiation alone is substantially better if you have an MGMT promoter methylation. Ah, this is Monica Heggie. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. believe she's based in uh, Switzerland. And I, and she, yes, I was pleased to see that. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and I spoke to her recently in Europe. Okay, so. So anyway, uh, back to, there was a study where they looked at patients with and without MGMT methylation, and they had the standard stoop regimen of concurrent temozolomide and radiation for GBM, and they had their first MRI after the concurrent phase, and about half of them had an enlarging lesion. Uh, of those, about two-thirds ended up having pseudoprogression, mm -hmm. and the majority of them had MGMT methylation. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to suggest that you are even more susceptible to having the pseudoprogression if you have an MGMT promoter methylation. So this is saying that, especially in people with that, if they have what looks like enlarging tumor on their first MRI, repeat it in four weeks. It's interesting. So what you're saying is that among the people... Um, who at the end of uh, radiation and temodar, that population who had pseudoprogression, the rates of MGMT methylation were very, very high. How was it? 80%? Mm, 66. 66. Now, I guess in my mind, you know, thinking as a sort of researcher, I'm thinking like I want to separate two things. Is it really the case that MGMT methylation makes you more disposed to pseudoprogression? Or is it that the people who have MGMT methylation are preferentially surviving long enough in for whom we can actually like detect this, you know, because you know the people. It's obviously a good prognostic factor, and it's a highly lethal condition. So that's the one thing I'm thinking about. But that's a kind of sophisticated causal analysis that uh, that we'll put aside for today. So what else? What else do you think is a good learning point here? Well, I think that uh, you know one of the things is we use this stoop regimen not only for GBM, stoop. but it's sort of extrapolated to a lot of other. Uh, glioma types and astrocytomas and oligodendrogliomas in the absence of better data. So mm. it is still sort of this um, very well-established regimen that we see and use a lot. Mm -hmm. And I want to pull up the median survival benefit in that uh, clinical trial. 
um, to kind of just put this in context, uh, but it was uh, 2.5 months. It was 4.6 months in the radiotherapy plus Timidar group and 12.1 months in the radiotherapy alone group. Um, the two-year survival rate was about a quarter uh, in the group that got radiotherapy and Timidar, but about 10% uh, in the group that got radiotherapy alone. And I think that just kind of highlights the lethality and seriousness of a GBM diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good teaching point. You, told, you taught us a little about MGMT methylation. You taught us a little bit about pseudoprogression, and we learned that it turned out there was something called pseudoprogression prior to immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. It's not just immunotherapy that makes one cry pseudoprogression. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Fen Olson. We'll be back for more questions of the week. Thank you. I'm back here for Question of the Week with Ian Straley. This is inspired by the USMLE Step 2 CK, which Ian is going to be taking soon. Ian, it's been a long time since I've seen you. Yeah, very long time. Very long time. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back in the studio for Mm -hmm. this question. And of course, listeners will know that you are part of the duo responsible for the music of this podcast. What What do you got for us this week, Ian? Well, so we have another step question step two so again this is like diagnosis treatment and management Mm -hmm. um so this one actually is more relevant to your podcast which is the reason i picked it oh good Um, it's a epidemiology type question Mm -hmm. so without giving anything away yeah but before you launch in i just want to make one point before we recorded these you you said that you tried to eliminate the easy questions that there's some questions on this test that 90 percent of people get correct Correct. And you don't want anything to do with those questions. Yeah, that, I feel like the learning value is what we're after here. So. Yeah, but I, I like the ego boost. Yeah. I have a fragile ego, Ian, <laughs> and I need it. I need some softballs every once in a while. Okay, well, we'll throw some of those in too. Okay, well, let's see what you got here this week. Keep okay. everybody feeling good. Okay, epidemiology. This is something that I should know well. All these degrees on the wall, they say that I should know this well. <laughs> but okay, if you well, ask me, who knows? Who knows? We'll, we'll find out. I hope it's not too hard. Okay, so a study is conducted to determine the utility of a cancer screening test. Oh. Mm -hmm. The levels of molecule Y are measured in patients' bloodstreams at the time of diagnosis and or recurrence of esophageal cancer. 15 out of 16 patients are diagnosed with stage 1 disease and have positive levels of compound Y. 20 out of 20 with advanced disease have positive levels of compound Y. 10 out of 10 with recurrent disease have positive compound Y. Meanwhile, in the control group, 9 out of 100 have elevated levels of compound Y. And compound Y is not normally present in esophageal cells. So what conclusion can be drawn regarding compound Y as a marker of early stage disease? Option A, compound Y will improve disease outcomes. Option B, compound Y will yield many false positives. Option C, compound Y will be good for identifying disease. And option D, compound Y has a high sensitivity and specificity, so it's an ideal screening marker. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Where do we start? I guess I'd say it's a very interesting question. I wish um, the good folks, Bert Vogelstein and colleagues, would read this question because they're working <laughs> on CancerSeq. Okay, so what do we know? We know that when you take healthy individuals who don't have esophageal cancer, 9 out of 100 of them will have test positive for compound Y. Correct. Okay, if you in have early control sta- group in a control group, so presumably they're healthy, healthy yes. and without the cancer. Okay. If you have early stage esophageal cancer, something like 15 out of 16, 
It's yeah, all but 15 one. out of 16. Okay. So I think that's trying to make you think like, hey, that's pretty sensitive. 15 out of 16. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And okay. in advanced disease, 20 it, out of 20. 20 out of 20. And in, and in relapse disease, is also 100%. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Yeah. So I guess I'd say that, uh, in fact, the reason Bert Vogelstein needs to read this is probably their um, CTDNA marker was actually probably be pretty close to this, that, you know, it's a lot of these kind of rip-roaring advanced tumors that are secreting a lot of these uh, CTDNA in the bloodstream. So I think what one of the things that's worth noting here is that, you know, as Adam Obley pointed out on this podcast, like one of the things that a good screening test does identify is you want to find early stage disease. And, you know, if you do find advanced or metastatic stage disease, the probability that you'll be able to interdict upon that and cure it, particularly esophageal cancer, is low. And so actually finding that disease is probably just adding lead time to those conditions. You're not actually making those people better off. Okay. okay. Yep, I agree with that. I think one thing here to note is that although esophageal cancer is, you know, a frequently seen tumor among all people in America, it's actually super, super rare. I mean, the annual incidence is, I have to, I don't have to double check, but I think maybe 50,000 or something like that. It's on the par mm. with pancreatic cancer, 40,000. Yeah, I think like less than 0.1% or something. I say very low percentage. And so what you have to think about is that if you apply this blood test broadly to lots of people... Um, that nine in a hundred, that is going to swamp anything you find. There's going to be nine in a hundreds all over the place, false positives. And you're going to find few and far between um, those positives that are the actual esophageal cancer. So I think of all those answer choices, I think one was you make people better off. The answer is who knows? You, you really need randomized control trials to know that. Um, one answer um, was that um, this is a good screening test for early disease. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it will be compound Y will be good at identifying new disease. Yeah, no, I don't think that's going to be the answer. I think the answer is going to be uh, you're going to be drowning with false positives. That is correct. It is correct. Ding, 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 ding. Compound Y, because it has 9 out of 100 in the control group. Yeah. And the as you said, the prevalence is super low of esophageal yeah. cancer. Yeah. I looked up the incidence and it's yeah. 4.5 out of 100,000. Okay. So pretty low. So if you have that many positive cases in a control group, um, when you expand the numbers up, you're obviously going to get a ton of false positives, as you mentioned. Um, so you got that number there, 4.5 out of 100,000. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I ran a quick calculation. Okay, so you say 4.5 out of 100,000. Let's just make this easy. Let's say there's five people with esophageal cancer out of 100,000 out there. So there's 99,995 people out there without esophageal cancer. For every 100,000 people, there are five people with esophageal cancer, 99,995 without esophageal cancer. That's right, Ian Straley. Correct. Okay, let's just assume for the sake of argument that every one of those five people out there has early stage disease and they are waiting to be cured by Dr. Vogelstein and colleagues from the, from the Johns Hopkins University. They're waiting waiting to be cured of their disease. Catch it and cut it out and I'll be cured. And they're all willing to undergo esophagectomies at the sign of a circulating tumor marker, even if the tumor cannot be localized on biopsy site or based on PET imaging. You can't localize the tumor, but they're all willing to undergo that, that big procedure. If compound Y is present. Yes, if compound Y is present. Okay, so let's just talk through what compound Y being present means. So among the people who test positive, five of them will have the disease of interest. Let's say all five of them test positive. There's five out of 100,000. Because the sensitivity is high. It's very high. Of the people who did not have the disease, there's 99,000 of them. And 8,000, nearly 9,000 of them are going to test positive because there's a 9% false positive rate. 8,999. 
let's just say 9,000. So there's 9,005 people who test positive for the disease, but only five of them really have the condition and 9,000 of them don't have the condition. So the probability that it was a false positive is 99.994. And the probability that you in fact actually have the disease is 0.0005. So in other words, it is just a false positive factory. That's gonna lead to a lot of downstream tests and make people really nervous. So this is a good question for step 2CK. It's something that every doctor should know. Certainly the group run by Vogelstein should know about this because they have yet to do proper validation. But the real question, the real way to answer the question is the routine use of this test, improving outcomes. It's a randomized trial. So I'll refer to the episode with Adam Obley. Thank you, Ian Straley. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Lynn Jansen. Lynn Jansen is the Madeline Brill Chair in Ethics Education here at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's a professor of medicine. She's somebody who has had sort of a diverse career. I'm going to try to take you through it. And and Lynn, correct me if I'm wrong. All right. Okay. So you initially trained to be a registered nurse, uh, and you did nursing uh, alongside your undergraduate studies, which were done in Florida. That's right. And then you went on to do graduate education at Columbia University in New York City, doing a PhD in political theory. Mm -hmm. And then you found your way into doing a research ethics fellowship at the McLean Center at the University of Chicago. That's right. And you have had a career that has spanned both clinical nursing as well as the research ethics of, in particular, clinical trials. Yeah, I actually the last, I would say the last 12 years, um, I haven't focused exclusively on the, the research of clinical trials and informed consent, uh, but I've focused quite a bit on that, uh, having received two NIH grants to, to do so. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, let me thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's well, great to have you. Well, you're welcome. Okay, so let me just jump right in and start asking you some questions. So. I guess, what made you go into nursing, and then what made you um, decide you wanted to go back and do graduate education in political theory? So the nursing, I I started nursing school right after uh, high school, and the decision was both, I think, um, grounded in sort of idealism of, of, a, of a 19 year old as well as necessity of a person who did not have a family who saved for her college mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. and at the time uh, in Florida um, I, I had actually gone to Florida just after high school to see you know what that would be like and, and check out some some um, other opportunities but it turned out when I was there uh, there was a shortage in nursing mm-hmm. and the the state of Florida was offering subsidies. So if one would go to nursing school, they would pay for that that opportunity in oh, wow. exchange for, you know, a payback. So you'd work in a, in a community hospital. I think nursing is a fabulous career, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But it's highly technical in its training, and I've always had a focus to actually get what I considered um, a broader education, a more well-rounded education, a more um, humanitarian-based education, in the it, just general education rather than purely scientific and mm-hmm. medical in nature. And mm-hmm. so that was always my intent mm-hmm. to go ahead and continue on in that direction. So I just needed to get a career to fund that. I see. And <laughs> so I did that. I see. So nursing was the way you paid your way through college initially. Correct. And in college, you pursued politics as a sort of a discipline. Yeah. In college, I was really interested in in philosophy. Um, I studied, it wasn't politics, it was legal theory. Mm. So it was, you know, the setting of the, the ancient texts 
mm-hmm. you know, Aristotle, Plato, then moving up into, into the modern, mm-hmm. you know, Rousseau and that sort of thing. And I really love that. And yeah. so I applied to uh, Columbia uh, to continue that pursuit. I was just really enthralled by the, the history of ideas and particularly the history of uh, political thought. And I was lucky to get a uh, fellowship to go to Columbia. So I uh, obviously would take that up. Mm-hmm. And I, I attended there and loved every minute of it. And I worked as a nurse still on the weekends um, in the ICU when I was there. So I, I would do, even with the fellowship, I would do some 12-hour shifts on the weekends just to... Get some money. Yeah, get some money and keep doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And it was actually an interesting a um, sort of coming together of experiences that led me to um, medical ethics. I see. Because my experiences in the ICU uh, really introduced me to issues that I just, you know, I grappled with as, as a nurse and as a human. And my education gave me the language, the ethical language, really, to be able to identify what it was that was bothering me and to be able to start putting names, mm-hmm. ethical names, on things that I would see and issues that would uh, trouble me and my colleagues. And just sort of one thing led to another, how life goes, right? Yes. So, so that's how it all Unrolled. So when you were an undergraduate, you were doing shifts some days of the week, going to classes other days of the week. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then when you were in graduate school, the same thing, except on the weekends, you were doing mostly the shifts. Right. And that's really the great thing about, I think, nursing. Right. You just have that much flexibility and mm-hmm. time. And especially if you're young, you can do the, you know, a couple 12-hour shifts and still have fire to do other stuff, right? You're not mm-hmm. burned out entirely. So it's it was really just ideal. And I feel really fortunate that I got that opportunity. To- I, I think it's quite impressive that you were able to do that. I guess at any age, to anyone to do that, because uh, I think those shifts can also be quite um, physically and emotionally um, and yeah, draining. I yeah. mean, they can be a tough shift. Definitely. And you worked in ICU nursing or different types of nursing over well, the years? Well, oh, my whole career, I think I spanned every type of nursing except uh, psych. Oh, wow. But mm-hmm. I ended up, my I, I sort of ended my clinical experience in, uh, in the ICU. And then I did a little bit of... Um, the very very end uh, a little bit of work in pain management so mm-hmm. it was it felt really amazing that the work that I was doing but it was at sometimes I almost thought am I outside my scope of practice mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. then and then again the ethics of, of pain managed back in the day when we were, were worried about the under treatment of pain right, that's right. when I was doing it and the ethical issues associated with that those were all really um, salient and just present for me and they were very motivating for me those issues and in directing me in the direction that I ultimately took and 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 juxtapose this for me with um, your dissertation what was the topic of your dissertation Um, my dissertation was um, beyond informed consent it was Uh, yeah Uh so so there was a theme Uh (laughs) Uh, problems of political legitimacy so it was you know was um, you know, as dissertations go, I think it was good. I got yeah. a, my degree from it, right. but it, I, you know, it was a it was a PhD dissertation. Mm-hmm. It never saw the light of day, the light of day, <laughs> or other eyes <laughs> than the people who read it for for the. But it was informed consent in the medical context. No, it was informed consent in the political context. And what is the political context of informed consent? Well, you know, the history of Republican government and democracy. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. you know, we, we do think that we are now actually and have always been, at least in the United States and Western Europe, um, governed by informed consent and through informed consent, even though it's not maybe direct mm-hmm. consent. It's part of the social contract. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so informed consent is a um, highly motivating principle in, in our political and legal 
legal system, and it always has been, and it's the foundation of our of our very government. Um, and the current government is it still very much informed? Well, that's well, that's That's part of the crisis Mm -hmm. too. Even Mm -hmm. you know, the wonder is it, and how can you maintain it? And and you know, so many philosophers felt that um, a government where the citizens couldn't be informed, where they weren't adequately informed, they weren't fit to be self-governing, right? So that's, I mean, that's a whole different different Mm -hmm. area. But um, yeah, so that was the nature of you know those are the questions I was I was looking at. Wow, yeah. so I can I can see already these kind of two strands of your life which have really woven together you know yeah. so nicely in in the most recent years. Um, but you know you've always kind of held these diverse interests between the clinical arena and thinking very broadly about these sort of philosophical concepts. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I you know I'm just lucky that I've had that kind of dual training. Yeah, and the training that I received in at Columbia was very very much more theoretical in uh-huh. nature and philosophical in nature and uh-huh. analytical in nature and so I think that was really a good just a good experience and a good complement for what what I'm doing now and then you went on after Columbia to the University of Chicago McLean Center that's right and there that fellowship is a clinical clinical ethics fellowship it's entirely a clinical ethics fellowship and I think I was the first nurse that uh, Dr. Siegler had admitted into that fellowship because traditionally he was only admitting physicians I see so I don't know he said I remember him saying after the interview I was in his BMW he's taking me back to the to the airport and and he was just kind of mulling it over should I do this and and then he said um all right, I'll take a chance on you. Take a chance yeah. on you. <laughs> I said, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I think <laughs> it's probably paid dividends, and it's, it's uh, you know, he's probably happy with that choice. Well. Um, and uh, this was a time at University of Chicago where there were just a number of uh, clinical ethicists on staff. Yeah. John Lantos was there. Yes. Laney, Laney Freeman-Ross. Laney Ross was there. Uh-huh. And Mark Siegler, of Mark course. Mark Siegler um, um, and Dudley Goldblatt. Uh-huh. Uh, so many, uh, Carol Stocking, Dr. Car- Stocking. And we also had, um, there was a lot of interest from the clinicians as well. There was uh, Richard Thistlethwaite, who's a transplant surgeon. Yeah. He's very interested in transplant ethics. So you had a really nice intersection, I think, of people who, like you, uh, had spent a lot of time seeing patients. Yeah. But also, like you, might have, like many of us, been concerned about some things we've witnessed over the years. Right, right. And wanted to kind of think more broadly and more clearly about that. Right. That's right. That, no, that was a great group there. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I was just, um, again, stimulated mm-hmm. beyond my, my wildest dreams that I thought I didn't know what to expect in mm-hmm. that context. But it was wonderful. Those people are just fantastic and giving uh, uh, teachers, really. And before you came on the faculty here, you worked on the faculty at a different university. I did. I was at uh, New York Medical College mm-hmm. and St. Vincent's, Manhattan. I see. You were yes. in Manhattan. I see. Yeah. So New York Medical College is in Valhalla. That's where I taught the students. Mm-hmm. But I did clinical ethics consultation. And my research component was at uh, St. Vincent's, Manhattan, which has since closed. I see. Yeah. And then you came here in what year? Nine years ago. Nine years ago. Yeah. And in your position here, you have been funded to do a number of important projects. Mm. And those projects have centered on, I think, the perception of research participants who Mm. are really, in this case, often patients with Mm -hmm. disease and often cancer patients, Mm -hmm. and the risks and perceptions of clinical trials and what they believe they're going to get out of it Mm -hmm. and what they might actually get out of it. Mm And, and you've done a lot of work on the so-called optimism bias problem. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you might tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the kinds of projects you've done, you know, in the last few years here? 
Sure. Um, the projects f uh, for which I received NIH funding had to do with uh, informed consent mm -hmm. in early phase cancer trials. And um, what motivated that, my interest in that project, and I suppose what motivated the NIH's funding of that project was that um, y I, you, you're aware of this, I know, but there has been for many, many years a problem in research uh, titled The Therapeutic Misconception, which mm -hmm. uh, really seems to be um, a confusion on the part of research participants uh, about the nature of clinical research and the nature of uh, clinical care. Mm -hmm. And what happens a lot when a person's manifesting this therapeutic misconception is that they, they tend to conflate these two contexts, mm -hmm. thinking one is the other. More um, troublingly, thinking that when they enroll in clinical research, they are going to be treated as patients when that's not necessarily the case. Really, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be the it case. It shouldn't be. So, um, so that's confusing uh, for, for ethicists because we're thinking, well, surely an informed consent process had occurred. Surely in that informed consent document, the, um, the, the research participant was informed that they were participating in research and all of the risks uh, associated with that. Um, and so, you know, research ethicists and ethicists generally have been focusing on this therapeutic misconception, and I want to say for about almost 30 years now, mm -hmm. and we've poured all of this money into trying to understand it and trying to correct it. And as a result, and you, you see this because you're, you're mm -hmm. involved in research as well, the informed consent document, right, mm -hmm. has gotten bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and bigger because mm -hmm. we had the thought that, oh, if they just don't understand the difference uh, between research and, and clinical care, so the, we just throw more information at them, that mm -hmm. will solve the problem. Mm -hmm. But it did not, the, the, this, the problem persisted. So I was thinking about this and you know worrying about it, um, and I was doing some other reading in social psychology that wasn't even motivated by this therapeutic misconception. But again, as things kind of come together, it really seemed to me to strike a, um, an important note. Um, and this research that I was doing and reading about was research in social psychology related to the optimistic bias. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the optimistic bias is it's pretty prevalent in human psychology. Right. And we all have it. We all demonstrate it in one way or another in our life. And right. not always is it problematic. Mm -hmm. But um, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't make a podcast. Correct, or we wouldn't we wouldn't <laughs> yeah. do many of the things that, right. we, that yeah. we do. I mean, but, we really uh, almost need it. That are, right to uh, take to take some chances. Right. Yeah. So so just that by definition, the bias is really um, the susceptibility to, to view oneself as more likely to benefit mm -hmm. uh, or less likely to suffer risks than other people who are similarly situated to us. Right. Mm -hmm. So a common example in, in just sort of real life, if you ask a couple, how what's the likelihood that you're going to stay married compared mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. your peers. Mm -hmm. Oh no, we're going to we're going to win out. We're mm -hmm. going to win. But they're going to get divorced, but we're going to stay together. Right. And right. we're above mm -hmm. average in right. that regard. Of course, we're all yeah. above average. Right, right, yeah. right. So so anyway, so doing the research mm -hmm. on the optimistic bias, I started to think, I wonder if that's what's going on. I wonder if these patients are um, maybe they're manifesting a therapeutic misconception, but maybe they're also uh, manifesting this optimistic bias as well. And so that's what motivated me to start studying it because nobody had looked at that before. That's interesting. And given mm -hmm. its prevalence in human psychology, why wouldn't it be here? Sure. Right. Um, and so, so that's what that's what motivated the research. Let me flesh it out a little mm -hmm. bit. So I guess 
I mean, many of us think of research as there's obviously a spectrum of research. On one end, you could have a randomized controlled trial that tests two commonly used strategies that people believe in with a lot of faith, but we don't know which is better. Mm -hmm. And in that case, surely there are risks to participants for participating research. There always are. Mm -hmm. But the potential to at least get some therapy that is considered efficacious is higher Mm -hmm. because it's a randomized trial of two things that's already in clinical use. Mm -hmm. That's one end of the spectrum. Mm On the extreme other end of the spectrum are the phase one dose escalation studies uh, in clinical medicine, and of which oncology is a unique setting because oncology, because we've historically been willing to bear toxicities that other fields might not be willing to bear, for instance, the toxicity that would, you know, tank a cholesterol medicine or heartburn medicine is often tolerated or accepted by the profession and perhaps even to some degree by the patients who happen to have cancer because the illness is that much more severe. Right. We do our phase ones just in cancer patients. And we know from some large scale studies by Chris Grady from the NIH mm-hmm. and others that the percent of people on phase one trials whose tumors shrink more than some arbitrary cutoff, mm-hmm. that's like 5%. Mm-hmm. So the rest of them, the tumors are not shrinking more than the response criteria. Mm-hmm. It's it's one thing to just say the tumors shrink. It's another thing to say they benefit. So right. we have to draw this distinction right. because just because they shrink doesn't necessarily mean uh, people benefit. But this is kind of a very sobering upper bound. Mm-hmm. It says that the vast majority of people who go on phase one trials, their tumors are not even going to respond by response criteria. The probability they really live longer or live better as a result of going on the phase one trial is kind of infinitesimal. It's, mm-hmm. it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. So the only reason the majority of people are going on a phase one trial is got to be for the good of other people. And they got to know that going into that if you want to be honest with somebody. And that is kind of, that's the space that you're working in. Correct. Thank you. That's that's perfectly said. Uh, right. I mean, and that's ethically troubling because most people, when you ask them, what's the reason why, why are you in this trial? And it's the, the main reason is to benefit, to cure my cancer and to benefit. We actually ask them and the, the words to cure my cancer are it's frequently stated. Oh, more than more than the altruistic response. I mean, if a person has an altruistic response and that's their primary motivation for participating in an early phase, especially a phase one cancer trial, there's not a problem as far as I'm concerned. That that's that's a perfectly reasonable thing to, to do. They Demonst- understand what they're getting into. Yes, mm-hmm. and not and, and not only the um the understanding but they appreciate, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, but but yeah, it's the vast majority of the other patients who, when asked, will say, why are you in this trial to cure my cancer? Okay, and, and it's not even, an, I mean, that's troubling enough, and that's why everyone was wringing their hands mm-hmm. over the therapeutic misconception for mm-hmm. so long, because mm-hmm. this is what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to have an impact on informed consent, if you want to make sure that we're respecting the patient as a person, making sure that they're making the decision that they actually want to be making, mm-hmm. that they intend to be making, mm-hmm. uh, we have to we have to get at the root of this answer that they're giving us. That it, mm-hmm. that is, I intend to have my cancer cured by participating in this trial. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting about our, our work on, on the optimistic yes. bias yeah. is that we we were able to show a couple things that that the bias itself people who demonstrate the bias they they can tell you in sort of in the general abstract way that yeah the purpose of this trial is um, to do some scientific research mm-hmm. some of them said to, it's to benefit the pharmaceutical companies I mean oh, some, well, some are quite cynical yeah right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the, the range Skeptical, of responses yeah. mm-hmm. were you know things that you might think okay that demonstrates an understanding right but then when you ask them about their own susceptibility to risks, yes. benefits compared yes. to others, yes. they were off the chart above average. And and that 
response didn't track with a lack of understanding it tracked with the failure to appreciate so that's another element of informed consent that clinical researchers traditionally haven't looked at but is worth looking at if you really care about the informed consent process so mm. so our our research brought to light i think the importance of looking at appreciation the importance of looking at motivations you know rather than just saying oh i'm going to tell you a bunch of information about a clinical trial do you want to be in it or not and you got to if you really want to show respect for the person you've got to delve deeper into what are their motivations not only what do they understand but what do they think their personal risk is compared to others and then you can start to really have a, a really genuine informed consent a discussion so and i want you to kind of tell me where you think when does it become problematic on this spectrum so on one end of the spectrum I think where many people will see it's problematic. If the doctors consenting someone to a phase one trial fail to mention the low probability that this will actually shrink the cancer and the even lower probability you'll be better off, I think we'd agree that would be problematic. Right, right, right. If the doctor does mention it, but the patient doesn't really understand it, doesn't really sink in, Yeah. but the patient is, is has this optimism bias and enrolls in the study, you view that as problematic as well. I do. And tell me, tell me, why do you think it's problematic? Yeah, wh- if you had to articulate, what is it? What is it that makes that problematic? I share your view, by the way. Yeah, so that's all, but yeah. I'm trying to ask you to articulate it better than I can. I think that you know, because if we take informed consent seriously, right, that we want the person to understand and appreciate what they're doing and to do what they're doing voluntarily, right? right. These are the sorts of elements of, of informed consent. And if we actually take that seriously, uh, then deficits in any one of those elements uh, should be troubling just on principle. Yes. Um, my worry is that, uh, I don't know if we, if I want to say all the time, but I think much of the time we uh, as healthcare professionals generally, and then as researchers more specifically, tend to give I want to say lip service to informed consent. It's sort of some, something we need to do as a legal requirement, but in the hustle and bustle of getting done what we need to get done, we sometimes fail to remember that it's a human being with whom we're interacting. And the reason why we care about in- informed consent, I mean, all three of those elements, Yes is because we want to show respect for the person yes. and respect for the patient. And then, you know, if that is not motivating to you, res- the respect for persons, then that on its own is troubling. It's troubling. Just by, by itself. <laughs> right. I mean, I wouldn't want to have, I want to pull you over and have a conversation. But So I guess, I mean, if, if let me see if I, if, I, if I say this fairly in a way that you'll agree with. Um, you know, as an ethicist and as somebody who thinks about this, it's not your position, it's not your job to tell people what they want from life. Right. Somebody might want the possibility of tumor shrinking. Somebody might want to do good for other people. It's not your job. But it is part of fairness, respect for persons, and someone's autonomy that when they make a choice and they say, I'm doing this because I expect or want X, that the facts of the case have to fit that. Mm-hmm. And if their understanding of the facts are very distorted, mm-hmm. you're really kind of painting a false image in their mind that leads them to do something that is fundamentally not compatible with what they actually want. Correct. And that's very problematic because that 
it disrespects a person. It takes, says a person has no right to choose their own fate. That's right. And in a way, I mean, to the extent that we as researchers know that we all have this human propensity toward an optimistic bias, uh, and we don't try to correct it or intervene on it, it's a it's exploitation. You're basically exploiting a potential human weakness for your own personal gain. I mean, that's the that's at the at the end of the day, that's what is going on. And what troubles me a lot about. Uh, optimistic bias and and although the um, the backlash I've had as a researcher when when I've been mm, publishing we'll on this that, yeah, yeah mm. people saying this doesn't matter well it does matter and we've shown that it's here and if we don't we really have an obligation to try to do something if we don't do something then we're we're complicit we are actually engaging in an exploitative um, venture and that's troubling too for the reasons of respect for a person. But yes. I like your point about, you know, we want to, we want the person to be doing what they think they want to do, right? right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's just the fundamental nature of respecting a person and respect for autonomy. And so, yeah. Let me ask you this question. If somebody... And I don't know the ethics of this, so and I don't know the legality of this. But if somebody were to somehow surreptitiously record conversations mm-hmm. of physicians or other providers consenting people for clinical trials, and if those recordings were to be made public in some way, mm-hmm. I don't know this to be true, but in my hypothetical world, there may be some videos you would watch where the observer, the lay public, will not be very happy with what is being said. Mm-hmm. It might appear that that provider is um, almost a salesman mm-hmm. or, or cheerleader for mm-hmm. that trial. Mm-hmm. Um, the provider may not be talking very fairly about what the alternative treatments would be outside of the trial. Um, the provider may be f- sort of focusing irrationally on the mechanism of action and how the drug might go in the cell and unlock something and do something fanciful. You right. know, they might just really get lost in the weeds on the mechanism and miss the facts that, you know, what are the real side effects? What is the real potential for benefit? Right. Have there ever been studies where there have been such surreptitious recordings and, and uh, that you're aware of? Or, or is this, this is something that's not been broached yet? What actually gets said in these discussions? Yeah, well, no, I don't actually know. That's really interesting. I don't know of any studies that have been done in in this way that you're describing. Um, But this idea of the exchange of information, again, this is this idea of informed consent. It is a process, but but this idea of how we exchange information with patients, what's going on when that information is being exchanged, it's really, really interesting. And uh, one of the things that we found is we looked at people who had already agreed to participate in these trials, and mm-hmm. then we asked them these questions about you know what they what they thought they were doing, and more specifically, how did they compare to others with respective risks and benefits of yes. the trials. Um, and we did find, like I said, that there was a high magnitude and prevalence of the optimistic bias in that population. It is it associated with perceptions of control. They thought that there, w- there was something that they could do to have the outcome that, that they were reporting happen. Mm. Um, oh, even in the trial? Yeah. But what could they do? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, if they mm-hmm. could do something, then it would it's be it wouldn't be research. Not participate, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah right. But yeah. but yeah. Right, but right. even by the very participating, they uh, yeah. thought that maybe maybe that was the thing that they did. The, I see. the things that the people would say when you'd ask them, well, why did you say that your chances were better than others who are participating in this yes. trial? Well, my doctor's the best doctor here. Really. Um, mm-hmm. I eat a good diet. I exercise. Right. So th- things that 
they could do personally or the relationship that they had with the physician or the relationship that they had with the institution really did feed the illusion of control. And that perception of control really um, generated, if you will, the optimistic bias. So the optimistic bias was growing out of the perception of control. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is... um, the people who declined to participate, they didn't show the optimistic bias. In fact, they showed uh, unrealistic pessimism, if you will. They thought they were more likely um, not to benefit than the average person. So I they see. were unrealistically pessimistic, and they didn't have illusions of control. Was it unrealistic pessimism or accurate pessimism? Because it was, like, was it based on the actual statistics of these trials? Yeah. Right, yeah. So that's actually, that's a good point. So on the on the scale, it looks like, you know, a much below average right, kind of thing, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, I see. So, that was, so it is below average, yeah. right? Okay. So you you know either way you what you want people to say is average right, right of course yeah right right <laughs> so yeah, right, right, so right, right. you're saying much below average right. like, well, why would you say that well maybe right. it was accurate in the sense that they should have been but uh, you know anyway no but no, it, no I see what you're saying you're saying that um, you know for anybody participating in the study the chance that the study will help you is the average right, I mean yeah. you have no reason to think otherwise right you're no you're no you're no better or worse than the other person because there are recruitment criteria right right, right. that's standardized and, things and, yeah right yes yeah. okay so so if so either way but what I thought was interesting about this difference between acceptors and decliners is when I talked to the clinicians and this is going back to your point about what's actually being said and what's yeah. going on um, there was the thought that the decision to participate was was already made right before the informed consent thing happened. So that almost wouldn't matter what the physician said in a way. It's the, when the person comes in and the physician broaches the the study, yeah. then I guess they they send it send the patient home with the consent. The patient talks it over with the family ideally or with or with another person and thinks about it. Um, if they come back, they're in the trial. They, they're go- chances are they're going to join the trial. So, so that when the actual formal, formal informed consent happens, when there's a, another discussion that goes on, the person's mind has already been made up. Um, Did you only look at phase one trial participants or? No, uh, early, early phase cancer. Yeah, so, so phase, phase one, phase two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the point, the, this is to your point about, you know, what's being said and how's, it, how's what's going on. I think that it, no, no study has been done, to my knowledge, looking at the actual conversation. But I think it's really interesting, again, how human psychology plays in all of this, right? We, we can say a lot of things to a person, but if their mind is already made up, they're not going to hear it. How do you feel about the systemic incentives that may encourage hospitals, centers, providers to solicit high clinical trial participation rates in such studies? For instance, providers may be authors of these studies, and they may have a professional interest in getting enrollment quick. Some institutions may even financially incentivize providers to bring these often lucrative studies to the university, which often have budgets that may provide surplus. Mm-hmm. Um, there may even be personal financial incentives to place patients on the study. Mm-hmm. There may be opportunities to work with companies and receive honoraria or consulting arrangements by participating in such studies. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the institutions may require such studies as a way to lure patients from the community who may perhaps even be adequately or perhaps very well treated by their local doctor, but they don't have this new optimism bias trial, mm-hmm. and it's a way to lure that market share over. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about these kind of incentives in the entire ecosystem that may, if anything, encourage 
people to foster the optimism bias and to sort of pour fuel on that flame? Yeah, I, that's that's well, that's a great question. I think that um, we've been worrying about this for years, by the way. You know, this and this is uh, way back um, 30 years ago when people were focusing not not on optimistic bias because that's a relatively new mm-hmm. issue, um, but on the therapeutic misconception that was front and center in in the recommendations about how, what to do about it. Right? How do we correct the, the therapeutic misconception? Well, you you tease apart this confusion about the clinical context and the research context, right? And the confusion is fostered and fueled when you have your very own physician whom you trust and respect and believe rightfully as your physician has only your best interest at heart. You confuse that researcher who's approaching you now, right? with your physician. I mean, yes. they're one and the same person. Right. But, the nor- but they're wearing a different hat. Exactly. And the, n- the normal patient uh, will think that my physician is suggesting me to take this route because it's in my best interest. Right. Which is what a person should expect their physician to do. But if the physician is a researcher, he or she may, may not be focusing on that. And in fact, as a good researcher, probably shouldn't be focusing on that. Right, because if they <laughs> if they believe everything is a home run, then they've lost objectivity. Yeah. Mm. So um, Rebecca Dresser, the bioethicist and um, lawyer Rebecca Dresser, long ago suggested that the way around that is to separate these institutions, right? So right. the person who's getting informed consent from the patient should shouldn't be the person's physician, right? right? And the person, moreover, shouldn't be wearing a white coat so that the right. patient is confused that, oh, this is a doctor with my best interest. The person right. should maybe uh, come in wearing a red coat, right? That's right. what Rebecca Dresser said. Oh, that seems reasonable. Or maybe we should be enrolling patients in research buildings that aren't associated necess- with the hospital. Yeah. So I, my idea has always been to have point counterpoint. So you get one person to talk about the potential risks and benefits who is on the side of, you know, ultimately you should do this trial because, uh, you know, they're participating in the trial. And then then you get somebody walk in the room and be like, oh, do you really want to come here all these times and get all these extra blood draws? And, (laughs) and, you know, you do know that this is a phase one clinical trial and the probability this works is actually very, very low. And, you know, like they actually try to argue against it like a court of law. Let's hear both sides. That's a great idea. I don't know. I like that idea. Yeah. But you know, you'd be an unpopular person around the hospital being on that other side. But isn't that just isn't that just great though that you know that because what you're doing is what we've been talking about trying to get the person to think for a moment uh-huh. on the other side of the coin. Right, right, right. right. And know. so one of the things just kind of on that vein is that um, you know it's really really interesting. Um, so there's all this work in social psychology around uh, this theory called mindset theory, um, which basically is advanced by uh, Peter Goldwitzer out of NYU. But basically the theory is, and and you'll relate to this as soon as I say it, that you know there are basically these stages of reasoning, at action phases, is what Goldwitzer calls them, right? And so first, when you're sort of you know, you have to do something, say, and en- en- enroll in a, in a buy a new car. Let's pick something that's neutral. Um, you know, you'll spend a period of time before you actually do something in what's called the deliberative action phase, right? So there you're going over the pros and the cons, thinking about, you know, is this really what I want? All of that kind of deliberative mindset activity that we're all familiar with doing. And then at some point after you've raised the pros and the cons and you're, you're satisfied, you'll move into what Goldwitzer calls an implementation mindset. And then you're in sort of all go mode, right? right? Um, and then when you're, when you're in all go mode, you are not 
open no. to the other side. Right. And so what's really interesting about implementation mindset is it's, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of like if you could get the patient subject uh, back it, into the implementation mindset. In deliberative mode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. In the deliberative mindset, then that what you just suggested would be wonderful because it would be they would be open and receptive to right. that information but once they've moved into the implementation mindset closed right because when when you've decided to do something you've decided to do it yeah. so i this car i bought is the best car ever you know there's no other car better what's interesting is it's not that hard actually to put somebody back into a deliberative mindset it's not hard at all but how many researchers would really want to do that would, would really want after the person signed the informed consent or was in an implementation mindset would want to just say, hey let's hit a pause and let me just take you back into the deliberative mindset so that you can really accurately assess your susceptibility to risks and benefits i guess i i mean uh, this may be a very harsh thing to say but i guess i would say once a researcher has in their own mind decided that a potential research participant meets the eligibility criteria and may further the study I don't see a lot of things in the system that would discourage that researcher from pushing for enrolling that patient. And I don't see a lot of incentives for that researcher to actually provide the pros and cons even handedly. Every incentive I see in the system is once the person checks the check boxes, the researcher has every personal, professional, financial incentive to push this person into that study. Is that is that wrong? No, there's. I don't. Yeah. I think yeah, and I and I think that it's um, and it's kind of a, a version of the implementation mindset on that yeah. researcher's part. So we have a conflicts of right. interest uh, and stuff like right. that, right? Their 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 deliberative phase is do they check the boxes and then boom, it's over and then it's made, over. No, get them on the study. Yeah. yeah, or even their deliberative phase might have been way way back to even decide whether I'm going to participate as a uh, researcher in, in the, the study, study. and yes. then once I've decided that yes, it's all go. Um, and yes. and I'm not saying that this is done out of malice or no, at, you know it, because. You know, again, we're psychological, rational psychological creatures, and lots of these biases, they really operate behind our back, right? We're, unless we're really, really conscious of our actions and the way we think, and you know, really um, self-reflective most of the time, you know, well, if somebody pointed it out to us, we might think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. But you know, we're just moving along life, doing doing what we do, and 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 it can be. Um, it can be shocking, I guess, sometimes to look at our own behavior or, or to see what we do if if we're brought into a more reflective stage. But I wanted to say yeah. that um, the, the tool to bring a person into the deliberative mindset, rather, even when they're already in an implementation, mm -hmm. you can pull them back at any point. Uh, it's a pretty easy tool. It, take, it takes 15 minutes, surprisingly. Um, and it, I won't go into what it is, but I will tell you that when I, I actually did a little pilot study of this of this tool here on the patients whom I interviewed uh, for my study, and it was pretty successful. You know, I didn't have a large enough number of people to really get strong, strong statistics, but it was trending in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But the worry that I encountered from my colleagues was... You're going to sabotage my study. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's, you know, if you put a person in a deliberative mindset and then you go over the pros and the cons with them, then they're going to somehow not want to be in the study. Yeah. There's I mean, no evidence for that, by right. the way. <laughs> but that's the worry. But, the, I mean, the only direction, is they're already full in. Right. So the only way it can go is they got to <laughs> the lose a few. Right. <laughs> Let me take, let me give you a thought experiment. Okay. Okay. This may sound bizarre, but first I'm going to think what somebody else would articulate. So some of the people who would articulate the, who are very 
proponents of, of phase one clinical trials and who some have even argued that there is no therapeutic mis- misconception because every patient does have potential for benefit, they would say something like, in whom do we deploy phase one clinical trials? These are often patients with cancers that have grown despite all available therapy and all proven therapy. That's the group of people we're talking about. Mm-hmm. One might imagine hypothetically in my thought experiment, there's a 300 such patients and they could have had everything from breast cancer to colon cancer to uh, myeloma to lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And they, despite all the available drugs and an FDA that's been rubber stamping drug approvals left, right and center, they have gotten through every single drug. They still somehow find themselves at the end of this. The drugs have been unable to contain the cancer, but their bodies are still otherwise fit and they're they're in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. And the reason I add that caveat is that of course we all know that many people who when their cancer grows throughout all these treatments they actually unfortunately are not that fit. They may have organ dysfunction, um, liver failure, they may feel unwell, and those patients unfortunately are not included in clinical trials and we really don't have good information for those patients. Right. Okay, so you're left with in my hypothetical 300 people, they've gone through all the approved therapies, they're still physically fit, the classic phase 1 cohort, the people who be enrolled in phase 1 studies. Okay, so in of my 300 people, 100 people we could take and put on phase one trials. And we could pick the best phase one trials. You know, let's go to the MD Anderson runs more phase one trials than anybody. Mm-hmm. We'll put them on the best phase one trials. Okay, that's one possible world. The second 100 people, these are people who they, and, and this, is a, this is something that actually happens in clinical practice. Somebody is in a rural setting. They're in a community practice. They have progressed through all the available therapies. Um, the doctor doesn't know what to do next. Um, but they can tell this person is looking for something else to try. Mm. And unfortunately, in this day and age, one of the things that they're going to do is they'll probably send their tumor off to one of these commercial companies and get like broad genetic sequencing on the hopes that it'll lead them to some off-label drug. And they'll be able to take that report and that drug and staple some, you know, preclinical data from, you know, from some mouse somewhere and and then get some insurance company to give this medicine. And you know what? They they probably will succeed because that actually is successful often in this country. Mm. Okay, so that's the second 100 people. Mm -hmm. The third 100 people is kind of what people would have done circa 1999. Uh, Circa 1999, what people might have done in such situations is they would look through all the treatments somebody has gotten. They look at all the sort of cancer drugs we have. They'd make an educated guess as to which cancer drug might still have a response. So, for instance, if somebody um, has tumor has grown on a platinum and uh, and an anthracycline, they might say they've never had a taxane. We don't know much about taxanes and disease, but we could just try single agent taxane. They might give some drug. This study has never been done. This sort of three arm randomized trial, hundred, hundred, hundred. In my hypothetical study, I don't know this to be true, but I have a feeling, and there's some data that might sort of circumstantially support it. The group that enrolls in phase ones, they may have shorter survival than the group that gets some standard of care off the shelf therapy. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so in my hypothetical world, we've never really asked the question, if you're eligible for a phase one, are you really better off going on the phase one rather than just getting some off-label cytotoxic drug that a doctor may, you know, want to prescribe? Now, then the second arm I haven't talked about, which is what would happen in the genetics testing arm, I think opinions on that would range quite widely. Mm. I, And from looking at a lot of data showing very low match rates and things of that nature, I would think that might even be worse than the cytotoxic arm. Maybe it will be better than the phase one arm. Maybe not. Maybe somebody else believes that that's going to be the clear winner. Mm. But I guess no matter, you know, no matter what this shows, if there are differences between these three groups, I think you've got a big problem. Um, if it is the case that participating in a phase one trial is not just an altruistic act, in the sense of like sacrificing your time, 
but it might even be an act in which your outcome is sacrificed compared to yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, we've never done this study. It's a thought experiment. But I, what does it make you think about? Just exactly what you're thinking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I do this because it's like sacrificing your life, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it's, yeah, it's... Um, You'd find it problematic. Oh, for sure. I would, yeah. And I actually, I don't know, but I think that you're right that about the phase one arm yeah. is, is actually... Um, I th- think it's not going to do so well. Right. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think uh, you know, and I also agree that really t- for me the only comfortable reason for enrolling in one of those trials is is for altruistic reasons uh, from an ethical point of view. I think about and this is just you know my little story that I remember um, when I first started these studies um, years ago. But I was at um, the cancer center at St. Vincent's in Manhattan, uh, running some of my questionnaires in my R- the R twenty one version of the study, and. And you know this because you're practicing uh, and you see this every day. But I, you know, people who St. Vincent's Manhattan is in downtown Manhattan. It's at the, actually the village, the in the, oh, the yeah. West Village West of Manhattan. Manhattan. And many of these people were on the Long Island Expressway coming to this cancer center. And if you know anything about the Long Island Expressway, you know that it is not an expressway. <laughs> it's a parking lot. Yeah. So I, I just would interview the patients and I would feel so really guilty and bad for them uh, when they were saying all of these responses about their expectations for benefit and their low expectations for risk and how, you know, all all the things that they were saying related to the bias and the therapeutic misconception. I felt really bad for them because I thought, gosh, you know, you don't have a lot of time left. And it's really important, I think, to, as we said before, to be doing what you want to be doing. And if you're under this impression, this false impression, and these illusions of control, and you know, I was just really moved by that in a in a in a real in a real way. I've always wanted to quantify for some of these trials that how much time does a trial have to give experimental arm over control arm to make up for all the time that is squandered by coming and going to all the frequent appointments. You know, as you point out, sometimes time may be limited. And isn't it just a shame if somebody is spending 4% of what little time of life they have in traffic? Yes, it's 100% a shame. And, and uh, I mean, it's again, it's not a shame if they're doing it for, for if reasons. If they understand what right, they're getting into. And they're right. doing it for altruistic reasons. I'm all for that. I think that's to be applauded uh, because that's how they want to spend their time. But if they're doing it because they're going to get more time, um, and it's not just that they're doing it. You know, there are family members. There's a family member in the car with them because they're too sick oftentimes to, to drive. And, and I just, yeah, I think that... So these these all go back to the, I think one of your initial questions about you know how concerned are you about the bias or the therapeutic misconception and and how does it all fit in the informed consent you know it, informed consent is about respecting a person's life right respecting the person as as such and their their time is part of that and w- when we get into situations where we're overlooking that because we're motivated by whatever it's not good it's not it's not acceptable ethically I don't think what kind of response does this work you alluded to this, but what kind of response do you get from doing this kind of work? What's been the range and what's more, what's the mode? Oh, I have had, um, I would say many of the physicians with whom I've worked over the years, so I've worked in, at many institutions, so I'm not singling out a single institution here at all, but uh, many of them 
felt, I think, uh, worried, as we talked about before, that somehow this was an agenda to bring down the research establishment, which is not at all my, I'm, I'm in all, all in favor of research. I think it's great. I'm doing research myself. Um, so I'm, that's not my agenda. But I think there was a fear that that was what the outcome would be anyway, and that would somehow interfere with, with uh, their plans. Um, but others, and not, not a small number, were really interested. I mean, I was moved, too, by how many uh, researchers, when I explained the problem that I was encountering and being troubled with, uh, they were saying, oh, I've been worried about this, too, because I've been taking people through informed consent, and they w- sometimes they would say things to me that I thought they were a little iffy, and I, you know, I just didn't know what to do about that, and if, even if I tried to correct them, they would hang on to these views. And so, you know, th- th- there were researchers who were just really self-consciously um, trying, really trying to, to make the situation better, but not really even knowing how to name it, right? What's going on here? And, you know, if you look at informed consent in such a legalized way, just sign the form, um, y- you know, you may not be m- moved to go deeper when you start hearing things that really are counter to, th- to the actual ethical nature of the enterprise. Hmm. So there, there's been, the answer is there's been a mixed response. It's been, um, it's been interesting. For researchers who want to do it better, any practical advice? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, first, I would definitely uh, probe into the motives that a person is having. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. Um, that would be the first and foremost thing that to do. To Why are you in this research? Ask simple questions like, you know, it's not hard to see if a person has an optimistic bias. You say, compared to other people in the same trial, what are the chances that you'll experience a health benefit? If they say anything above average, you got to put a pause button on. You say, compared to other people enrolled in the same clinical trial you're enrolled in, what's the chance that you're going to experience a health problem from being in the trial? If they say anything... <laughs> right. Um, so, so these are easy questions to ask. It doesn't have to take all day. Um, I think a lot of research. And I guess it's helpful the other way too, because the people who are overly pessimistic, you can kind of counsel them out of their it, pessimism. Correct. Yeah. yeah. You exactly. So easy questions to ask. Um, I think that w- the more knowledge that we have as researchers of these human psychological tendencies, the greater the obligation we have to probe into them. So that would be my my major advice. I think too, um, not. Be overly worried if a person's just uh, optimistic, right? I mean, there is unrealistic optimism, which is a bias that does affect uh, and negatively impact the appreciation component of informed consent. That's troubling. But some people are just dispositionally optimistic, right? And they don't have the bias. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so if a person's just having a rosy outlook and they're just going to throw some light on what they're doing, um, but they can, they can still understand and appreciate what's happening. So mm-hmm. uh, I think a, a researcher really has to be careful to, to be uh, discerning in his or her understanding of the kind of optimism that they're looking at. And, and that's an easy thing to, to get at as well. It just requires a little bit of time, extra time, and a little bit of effort to delve into the human being uh, and where they're coming from rather than just a mechanistic approach to informed consent. And you would say that the researcher not only should do this, they have a duty to do this. I do believe that. Yeah, Yeah. I believe that. You might think if there was nothing we could do to correct it, maybe that would be 
I mean, you know, there, there's some way you could debate that maybe, okay, I know that there are these human tendencies toward the optimistic bias. Um, there's nothing we can do to correct it. You might then have to have a, come up with a different strategy, but we know that there are things one can do to correct that. And, and to know that and not to screen for it, I think is, that's just wrong. I think, I mean, I think what you're hitting on is something that is very, very important very, very understudied, despite the fact you've done good work studying it, like in the global place. Yeah. It's still understudied. It is, yeah. There's a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. Do you feel as if funders are adequately supporting this line? What I'm trying to say is that I don't think anyone's that interested in this line of work. Are they that interested in this line of work? Are they... Right. Well, you know what's really hard to get funding for ethics, right? To get um, outside funding for ethics. So the NIH, for a period of time, and that was a window in, under which I was, I got my funding, um, they were, the NIH, especially the Na- National Cancer Institute, uh, very, very interested in funding empirical research on ethical issues in human subjects, um, domains in the human subject research so they didn't they funded a lot um recently that that's kind of petered out so there's they're really at present as far as i am concerned or aware there are no um program announcements for that kind of thing looking at ethical issues in human subject research there may be ethics in neuroscience because that's the hottest thing now i think but but um so yeah it's it's just where money gets allocated and i think really most of the money from the nih gets gets put in the buckets of bench science and this sort of clinical trial stuff rather than looking at the lord's work they call yeah it. the, the lord's, lord's work <laughs> so let me yeah. ask you this last question i guess i want to say um there are some in oncology and even some famous people who've written books about how increased sensibilities of research subject ethics have ruined the ability to make progress. They actually take such bold stances. Hmm. Perhaps they're conflating two things, because on the one hand, there are ethical principles that we need to aspire for. On the other hand, there may be some bureaucratic um, sequela that are done out of name of ethics, but perhaps don't accomplish stated goals and perhaps do unduly burden the the research enterprise. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the rules in the ethics system do have a real reason and usually often many much blood on their hands there's a, there's casualties that occurred that led to that rule change for sure right so i guess what i want to say is i mean just speaking broadly ethics is not the antithesis of progress ethics is how you have progress in a way that respects human beings would you say that's fair and and but do you also agree that there's this part of overreach where we've implemented some things that are unnecessary and 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 the flip side the lots of things that we're not doing that would make research a lot more ethical yeah. yeah I agree completely yeah I think a lot of people complain about the overly long burdensome consent forms and, yes. and, and there's all the, the there are a lot of regs and many of the regs are moti- probably most are motivated from a, coming from a good place but they they can be experienced by the researcher as very burdensome right um but yeah, I completely agree. Ethics should be the friend of progress. You know, yes. <laughs> you know when we when we start backsliding historically in most all areas and doing things that we're thinking, didn't we know better? It's because I think mostly we've forgotten the ethics uh, that we supposedly knew. So it's it's not a class you can take and just forget. It's mm. it's it's something that you have to live. You have to live it every day um, as a as a human being. Um, for sure, but also as a healthcare professional and as a researcher, that has to be, I think, front and center. Your guiding and salvo. I yeah. think so. Your beacon. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, be competent in your practice for sure and the, and the technicalities of your practice, but you have, to have, you have to be also practicing ethics. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll give you the final thought, but the last thing I'll say is to defend my thought experiment. You know, I made that thought experiment mm-hmm. with the three-arm mm-hmm. study. So the reason I actually do think that the phase one trial will lose to the standard of care cytotoxic arm is that in that actual study by Chris Grady and colleagues at 2005, I think New England Journal of Medicine paper, uh, one thing it's an analysis for all phase one trials that were run through the NCI uh, over a period of time. So a lot of these studies that have been published, they only look at the published phase one clinical trials, and that's just totally useless to look at because of the massive publication bias in that space. Right. So Chris Grady did it the right way, of course, and there's another group at MD Anderson that did it the right way. And when they do it the right way, they find there's like a 5% response rate. But Chris Grady and colleagues, they did one thing further, which was they looked at the response rate by class of agent, and there were some drug trials that were like typical first in human phase one dose escalation studies. Those had like the lowest response rate. And there's like one class of trials where it was you'd attach a phase one drug to a cytotoxic backbone like cisplatin mm-hmm, or adriamycin, mm-hmm. so something that we know works in cancer broadly, and that had like a 14 to I think almost 20% response rate. So the reason I do think my thought experiment that the phase one trial would actually lose is that I think in this population, it has been established that when the phase one does contain active uh, cytotoxic therapies, even if they are not known to be active in that condition, there's a, like a much higher response rate, maybe three times higher. Mm. So I actually mm-hmm. think it would lose. And I think that, I mean, I think that that study will probably never be done. And for the simple reason that a study like that, that is done, that reaches the conclusion I fear it may reach would be very poisonous for the conduct of phase one trials going forward. And I think people would have a lot more apprehension. And for that reason, I think there's, it's, it's going to be a major blind spot and people aren't going to do that study. But I think, you know, what your work makes me think about, I mean, you know, you and you and I know each other for a few years now. So, <laughs> you know, I've long been interested in your work because I think it's so important. It's just so, so important because when I read these people who write like, um, I was reading DeVita's book about the history of Hodgkin's lymphoma and he talked about like how great it was to be able to change your protocol between every patient and, you know, how it had no regs and you could do, you know, research the way research ought to be done. <laughs> I think that, you know, that's a very scary attitude to take because... Um, you can do good research, you can make progress and treat people correctly in the research process and be fair and also recognize that the person running the trial, you're not God Mm -hmm. in the sense that you don't know what's best for everyone at every moment. And there are people who may not be running the trial who speak for different sort of thoughts and considerations that may really be capturing something that you're missing in your enthusiasm and your willingness to believe in your laboratory science. And you got to listen to those people because if they had been listened to more in the history of Western medicine, we would have done a lot less damage to a lot of people. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I just think that's perfectly well said. I couldn't agree more. I I think that's really, really well said. Yeah. Well, thank you. And then what about, I guess I'll give you any closing thoughts on, I don't know, your work. What has your work taught you about, are you optimistic? Do you have an, what's your, are you optimistic that we will make progress, you know? Do you have an optimism bias that will we will <laughs> ten years from now will we look at clinical trials in, in the future and will we be further along? Will conversations be uh, even of a higher degree than they are now? Are we going in the right direction? Are we getting worse? Perhaps I mean that's I guess my question for you. What what do you think? Mm. Well, I don't know actually what to think about all of this because um, the fact that we've been struggling with the therapeutic misconception for as long as we have, I think over 30 years now. And the optimistic bias is kind of a new comer on the research ethics since, since, our, since our research. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of faith in, in the motives of healthcare professionals and researchers generally, but I know everything that you just said about, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of human uh, nature in some level to get caught up in one's own 
one's own work and one's own interest. And so the, it, it's tricky. The one thing that I'll say that I, I've learned and, and really most appreciated about the work that I've been doing is um, the importance of human psychology and the importance of understanding human psychology to ethics. Uh, you know, I think that um, it, it, it can be fun to theorize about theories and, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for that kind of work, but um, when I started to really delve into human psychology and social psychology as well, it, it, ga it gave at least clinical and research ethics for me the grip that it maybe was lacking. It, had, it just gave it so much more of a, a grip. And I think that's true because in the healthcare professions, who are we dealing with? Human beings, right. right? And it's and and I also realized um, studying the uh, this work and getting more grounded in social psychology and human psychology is that healthcare professionals as generally don't have a great understanding of the human mind hmm. and what motivates people. So mm -hmm. I mean, this is sort of an out there response to your question, but that's what I've learned most from this work, mm -hmm. and that's what is now motivating me most is mm -hmm. to try to bring an. Uh, sort of ride in this intersection between uh, ethics and human psychology mm. and social psychology and see see how if we can't make progress that way. That's wonderful. That's well said. It's a rich space, and I, I wish you the best in it. Dr. Lynn Jansen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, taking time out of your busy schedule. And thank you. Look forward to chatting more in the future. Yes, thanks. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.